Hey, uh, Ben, can you do me a favor and pull up the, the last verse of that last song that we sang? Just the verse, not the chorus. Let's see if it's the one. Drops of Grief, I believe was, yeah. I was thinking as, as we were singing that, I don't know if you, if you take in sometimes the words that we sing uh, and, and think about them. I really hope you do. Uh, worship does involve your mind and not just the, the words that come out of our mouths, but drops of grief can, can ne'er, that means never, never repay the debt of love that I owe. It, it, free sermon, okay? Uh, what we try to do a lot is make up for what we've done wrong, don't we? And I feel really awful. And so I'm going to walk around today because I sinned and I'm going to be really sullen and I'm really going to show God how, how bad I feel for what I've done. And so we have these drops of grief everywhere. We just, boy, just oozes out. We're just so, so upset about our sin. And I'm, I'm going to really show God how serious I am about following him by how bad I feel for what I've done. And the, the song has proper theology. It's, it's not just a catchy rhyme. Drops of grief can never repay the debt of love that we owe to the Lord. It does not matter how bad we feel about what we've done, how awful we present ourselves to be. Repay, we cannot make up for what we have done. And so what, what does the songwriter say after that? Here, Lord, I, I just give myself away. That's all that I can do. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel says this, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? He says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. What he was encountering were people who said, I'm going to make up for what I've done wrong. And as long as I do these sacrifices the right way, as long as I feel really bad and I show God that I feel really bad by how much I, I, I put on a sad face or how much money I give or how many sacrifices I make and so on, then I guess God will be okay with me. What does he say? God wants obedience. What is it? I, just to give yourself away to him. I don't know if you showed up this morning and today is sort of a uh, kind of an obligation. Well, I'm going to, you know, I, I know I need to do these things. And so I guess if, if I do these things like going to church and I toss some money in and I stand when I'm supposed to stand and I sit when I'm supposed to sit and I listen a little bit and whatever, then maybe God will be cool with me finally and I'll not feel so bad anymore. Hey, you can try all that stuff and we've all done it, haven't we? And it doesn't work. Because the drops of grief never repay the debt of love that we owe. It is a free gift. The lifting of your guilt, the lifting of your shame, the removal of your sin is a free gift that you can never make up for. And all you can do is simply receive it, giving yourself wholly to the Lord. Totally free sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that truth. Uh, that, Lord, no matter what we do, you don't stop loving us. No matter what we do to try to make up for our sin, you simply say you don't have to. So Lord, make us a people of obedience rather than just going through the motions of making a sacrifice, if you will. Lord, teach us today through your word about your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read you part of a story, good story. It comes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. About midway through the story, they begin, the children do in the story, if you don't know it, I would highly encourage you to uh, take a read sometime or watch it. It's been made into a movie. But they begin to hear about this 
this character that they don't know much about. His name is Aslan. And, and they begin to ask some questions. And all at once, here's what they say. Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices. For once again, that strange feeling like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan, asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. B. You don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn, turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he, would, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This morning we're going to take a look at, I think, something that points directly to that story. Is God safe? Is he safe? No. But he's good. By this point in our series on Job, if you've been with us the whole time, or maybe just a few times, or if you've ever read the book of Job, by this point, you know that this is a, a kind of a difficult book. I, I was talking with someone before service and we were talking about some of the difficulties in understanding, rightly understanding the theology that comes through in this particular book. And it can be difficult. And sometimes we, we know the, the right things to say, but we, we don't say them the right way. And we try to understand that this is a difficult book to put into words. Sometimes difficult to understand. Really awful things happen to an incredible man of God. He, he was a great man of God, and yet at the end of all of his stuff that happens, he's just left with sorrow and questions. And this series, I'll be honest with you, for me, and maybe you would say, hey man, good grief, I thought you, it just seems to be dragging on, doesn't it? You can nod. It's okay. It's like, man, seriously? 15 sermons on Job? You're on number 11? Dude. I know that's what you're saying. I get it. It seems to be dragging on. It does for me. I'm like, man, I'm preaching on Job again this Sunday. Again. I'm only in chapter 20 today. We have 42 chapters. Good grief. But pain and sorrow are like that, aren't they? I mean, they just drag on. And you're not really sure exactly when's it going to be over. The book of Job, our series anyway, is going to be over after 15 sermons. 
Maybe it feels like it's dragging on. I'll be honest with you, this series kind of drags on a little bit by design because that's how pain is in our lives. It just drags on. For some, you've showed up today and your week has, has just been full of sorrow and confusion. And maybe you say, well, I don't have it as bad as this person. Let me just be honest with you. If you want to compare yourself to other people, you're either going to feel really good all the time or really bad all the time. There's no in-between. So comparing yourself in the week that you've had, well, I don't have it as bad as these people, you know, across the world who don't have anything or these folks who have gone through this or whatever, that doesn't matter. What you've dealt with is real to you and it's a big deal. And so maybe this week you've shown up today and all of a sudden it's like, man, I tell you what, if I think about it, it's just been pain and sorrow. And you've discovered already what Mr. Beaver told Lucy, that God is not really safe. And you're wondering if the other part of what he said is true, that he's good. The series has just been trying to explore the question of what do you do when life doesn't make sense? And today, Job gets to the point where he kind of wonders aloud, you know, with all that's happened to me, is God really even good? I mean, I know he's there, but is he good? He's lost everything Job has to catch you up quickly on the story. Job is held up by God himself, and God's own words is this incredible man of God. He says he's blameless, which means he's a man of integrity. He says he shuns evil, which means he's repentant, and he fears God, which means he worships God alone. And God said that about Job. And Satan says to God, yeah, that, that's true. But the only reason he does all those things and he lives the way he does and he follows you is because you've given him everything. If you, if you removed your protection and let me attack him, then I guarantee you he wouldn't follow you anymore. God says, I'll take that test. Not a test of Job as much as it is a test of God. Is there anything of God worth worshiping if we don't have the things of God? That's the question in the book of Job. And so Job has everything taken away. All of his stuff... All 10 of his children are killed. He loses the support of his wife. He eventually loses his health. And then he faces the attack from friends. And today, a man named Zophar sits down with Job for the second time. And he's going to set him straight once and for all. Look with me in Job chapter 20. We're going to look at what Zophar, his so-called friend, says to him. Job chapter 20, verse 2. This is why my unsettling thoughts compel me to answer, because I'm upset, his friend says. I have heard a rebuke, this is a rebuke from Job, that insults me, and my understanding makes me reply. Don't you know that ever since antiquity, from the first time man was placed on earth, the joy of the wicked has been brief, and the happiness of the godless lasted only a moment. Basically what he's saying is the wicked get what they deserve, and it doesn't take long for it to happen. Through his arrogance, though his arrogance rather, reaches heaven and his head touches the clouds, he, this wicked person, will vanish forever like his own dung. Those who, who know him will ask, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and never be found. He will be chased like a vision in the night. The eye that once saw him will see him no more and his household will no longer see him. His children will beg from the poor, for his own hands must give back his wealth. His bones may be full of youthful vigor, but he will lie down with them in the grave. Though evil tastes sweet in his mouth, and he conceals it under his tongue, though he cherishes it and will not let it go, but, but keeps it in his mouth, yet the food in his stomach turns into cobra's venom inside him. He swallows up wealth, but must vomit it up. God will force it from his stomach. 
He will suck the poison of cobras. A viper's fangs will kill him. He will not enjoy the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He must return the fruit of his labor without consuming it. He doesn't enjoy the profits from his trading. For he oppressed and abandoned the poor. He seized a house he did not build. Because his appetite is never satisfied, he does not let anything he desires escape. Nothing is left for him to consume. Therefore, his property will not last. His prosperity, rather, will not last. At the height of his success, distress will come to him. The full weight of misery will crush him. When he fills his stomach, God will send his burning anger against him, raining it down on him while he is eating. If he flees from an iron weapon, an arrow from a bronze bow will pierce him. He pulls it out of his back, the flashing tip out of his liver. Terrors come over him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. A fire unfanned by human hands will consume him. It will feed on what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions in his house will be removed, flowing away on the day of God's anger. This is the wicked man's lot from God, the inheritance God ordained for him. Do you hear what Zophar is saying? He's saying, look, Job, at all that happens to the wicked. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, you just see it over and over. He just keeps describing it in different terms. Look what happens to the wicked. They're destroyed and everybody knows it. They don't prosper. Only the righteous prosper. Now, that's been the message from Job's friends all along. Only the righteous prosper. The wicked are dealt with very quickly. God destroys them. You get what you deserve, Job. Nothing more, nothing less. And then Job answers in chapter 21. Pay close attention, he says, to my words. Let this be the consolation you offer. Bear with me while I speak. Then after I have spoken, you may continue mocking. As for me, is my complaint against a man? Then why shouldn't I be impatient? Look at me and shudder. Put your hand over your mouth. When I think about it, I am terrified and my body trembles in horror. Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? Stop there for a second. Job says, as he looks around and he says, you know, it's often the case that not only are the wicked not punished, but they prosper. You notice that in our world? Things haven't changed, have they? Job looks around and he just says, well, you know, the wicked people often get what we know the righteous people deserve. And then all that flows after this, follows after this, is what Job says. These are signs of God's favor is what the, what the righteous deserve. Their children are established while they are still alive and their descendants before their eyes. I mean, think of the pain that Job went through, losing all of his children. He sees wicked people. They get to enjoy their kids. I didn't do anything wrong, Job says, and I've lost everything. Their homes are secure and free of fear. No rod from God strikes them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their, their cows calve and do not miscarry. I mean, all Job had was taken from him. They let their little ones run around like lambs. Their children skip about, singing to the tambourine and lyre. They rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and go down to Sheol in peace. Job, Job of course, had no peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. Job says, I don't even care about God. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what will we gain by pleading with Him? Listen to, listen to what He's saying. But their prosperity is not of their own doing. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Does disaster come on them? Does he, God, apportion destruction in his anger? Are they like straw before the wind, like chaff, a away? God reserves a person's punishment for his children. Let God repay the person himself so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his demise. Let him drink from the Almighty's wrath. 
For what does he care about his family once he is dead, when the number of his months have, has run out? Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges the exalted ones? Once a person die, one person dies in excellent health, completely secure and at ease. His body is well fed, his bones are full of marrow. Yet another person dies with a bitter soul, never having tasted prosperity. But they both lie in the dust, and worms cover them. I know your thoughts very well, and the schemes you would wrong me with. For you say, where now is the nobleman's house? Where are the tents the wicked live in? Have you never consulted those who travel the roads? Do you accept, don't you accept their reports? Indeed, the evil man is spared from the day of disaster, rescued from the day of wrath. Essentially, they face no judgment from God, Job says. Who would denounce his behavior to his face? Who would repay him for what he has done? He is carried to the grave. Someone keeps watch over his tomb. The dirt on his grave is sweet to him. Everyone follows behind him. And those who go before him are without number. So how can you offer me such futile comfort? Your answers are deceptive. Job says, you guys don't understand. Job's looking for reasons, as are his friends, for the evil and the suffering and the pain that come into our lives. Why do we say there are reasons for everything that happens? What kind of reasons do we say God has for allowing evil and tragedy? How can we say that anything that involves unimaginable pain and suffering could come from a good God? Is God really good? And if he is, why all the pain and suffering and evil in the world? And you say, well, maybe he just can't stop it. Well, if he's not all-powerful and can't stop that, then how could he do anything else? And those are the questions that we're often left with. Let me give you just a, a few things quickly um, about evil itself. The Bible just lets us know that it just is. We don't get a detailed explanation on the, the origin of evil. We don't. I mean, I wish we did. God would say every single thing about it. We don't. We just, we, it just is. It's just there. It just shows up in Scripture. It just is. Uh, another thing about evil, it, it is not from God. There is no evil in God. God is pure. He is righteous. He is holy. There is no evil in Him. We also see evil in our brokenness, both in our own sinful natures and in our world. The Bible tells us that we are born sinners, that we will sin, and that our world groans under the weight of human sin and the brokenness that has come from it. Also, evil is not more bad than God is good. Okay? Evil is not more bad than God is good. Not all is lost. Well, I don't know what's happening to our world. I don't either. God does. He's doing something. I'm not God, I don't know, but I know that God is more good than our world is bad. We see that in Scripture. And, and we also get the idea that, that evil one day will end. It will end. We don't have to live as if life is hopeless. God is patient for whatever reason, His reasons. God is patient with the wicked. We learn that in the New Testament. But one day He will crush it once and for all. And so when the Bible gives us a look at evil, what we get more in the Bible is really a look at God's heart. It shows us that God is good in spite of all we see happening in our world and our lives. And goodness isn't something that God just chooses to express on occasion. It is who he is. And so this morning, I just want to give you a few things. We're going to roll pretty quickly. You can see there are eight of them. Okay? And for those of you that are OCD, the first four, God is good, but. The next four, God is good, and. 
There's a there's a, a line of demarcation there. Okay, and just follow along. Okay, I'm not not that I'm OCD in any way. All right, not at all. <laughs> but that's how we got it. All right, so you ready for these? We're gonna go eight. We're gonna boom boom. Here we go. You ready? First of all, when we talk about things that Job needed to learn, and so do we. He had to learn about the goodness of God, what it meant, and one of the things was that God is good, but we are not immune from pain and suffering. His friends taught him that if you are righteous and you walk with God, then you will not have any pain and suffering. It's just the way it is. I mean, you, you will, it will not affect you. You will be immune from it. You, you immunize yourself from pain and suffering by walking with God. That's what his friends... So if you do good, you get good. And if you do bad, you get bad. And if you are getting good, it's because you've done something good. And if you're getting bad, it's because you've done something bad. Or those who do what's right in the eyes of God are immune from any kind of pain and suffering. That's what his friends were saying. Job, if you just live right, this stuff wouldn't happen to you. But we know that's not true, right? I would hope by now that life has taught you that that's not true. You don't even have to look in the scripture to see that that's not true. You see people all around you. You are that person who has done your best that you know of. You've lived up to obedience to God to, to the fullest extent of your knowledge. And yet bad things have continued to happen in and around your life. We know that in the story of Job, that this idea that we're immune from pain and suffering, that's not true. Job had all this stuff happening, yet God said he was great. We know from the heroes of our faith, look in Hebrews chapter 11, talks about people being sawn in two, or sawed in two, if you want to put it that way, all right? They were sawed in two, cut right in half for following Jesus. You're telling me that pain and suffering does not exist in the lives of believers? That's total garbage. And yet we want to believe that we're immune from it. We feel like we should be. God, I've walked with you for these many years. I mean, what in the world? God, I mean, I, I, I'm doing everything I know. Can, can I get a break? You ever had that conversation with God? Probably having it with yourself, but you ever, ever have a conversation with God? Lord, I don't understand. But pain and suffering in the lives of believers do not negate the goodness of God. So God is good, but we're not immune. Secondly, God is good, but he's not fair. At all. Zophar, his friend here, Job's friend, does not care if, if God is good. He just knows God is fair. He, he, he just says wicked people always get, right now, what they deserve. I mean, it's always. They always get what they deserve. And the same for the righteous people. If you just live right, then you'll, you'll get what you deserve. He's not interested in, in, in Job finding a way to endure and helping Job get through things. He's just interested in proving his point that God is fair. Do you know what would happen if God were fair? He would give us what we deserve, right? I mean, that's what we, when kids say, well, that's not fair. Well, it's not equal, right? It's not, it's, you're giving someone else what, what, what maybe they don't deserve. Well, listen, I deserve something different. Hank and I were having this conversation. We were talking about the sermon the other day. He was on, on our way to practice, I guess, yesterday morning. And we were talking, and I said, you know, one of the points I'm going to make is that God is good, but he's not fair. And Hank immediately made the point. He said, if God were fair, what? We'd all be in hell. Uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, about got it. I praise God that he ain't fair. Because I ain't getting what I deserve, right? You, you with me? God is not fair. If you want a fair God, go be your own God and make your arbitrary judgments according to whatever you believe is fair. God is not fair. He's better than fair. 
He's beyond fair. He doesn't have to settle for being fair. He does not give us what we deserve. In his grace, he removes, he actually gives us something we don't deserve. And in his mercy, he removes from us what we do deserve. God is not fair. His friends, Job's friends, all wanted to say this God is fair. No, 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 no. God is not fair. Get that through your head. You ever told your kids that? Listen, life is not fair. Okay, deal with it. That's not fair. Life's not fair. You ever had that conversation? I mean, you don't really say it mean, do you? Yeah, you do. That's not fair. Life's not fair. Let me tell you about growing up, my childhood, uphill both ways in the snow. I didn't have no shoes. I have nothing. Chased by dogs and, man, on the way to school, I had to walk 15 miles. And that was only halfway. Life's not fair. Deal with it. We grow up and we've been told life's not fair. And yet what? What do we want? We want life to be fair. We're just grown up kids, by the way, because we don't complain to our parents anymore. We complain to each other. We complain to ourselves. We complain to God. Life's not fair. I'm not getting what I deserve. Praise God you're not getting what you deserve. We'd all be burning in hell right now if we all got what we deserve. So life is not fair. Thirdly, God is good, but not like us. God is good, but... But not like us. Not, not like we would define it. Zophar and Job's other friends, they shrank God down to someone they could say, you know what, two plus two always equals four because we know that's good. We know that's right. That's how we operate, and so it must be how God operates because God is what? Made in our image, right? We, we think that people are good. That's a good guy. You know what? She's just a, a good, sweet lady. We think that people are good when they're nice to us, when they do things for us. They don't really cause us any trouble. They just sort of stay out of our way and let us do what we want to do, and they're just there to kind of reinforce that and just be nice and encouraging to it. Hey, you know what? Man, such a good guest. So easy to get along with. That's our definition of good, when they do nice things that are obviously nice for us. And they don't tell us that we're doing anything wrong at all. They just, yeah, go ahead. You read about that God in the Scripture? Maybe your translation is different from mine if you are, because I can't find that God in Scripture. The God that is good according to our definition of good. Now, what I've found in Scripture and in my own life is that God is completely other. I can't explain God. I have, I've said this to God before. Lord, I can't explain you, but I can't explain anything without you. I, 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 I don't understand all of God's goodness. He's not like me. He is other. But it's not that good, according to God, is so far from our definition of good that we can't understand it completely. It is simply that he is better than our definition of good. Like I said, he's better than fair. He's better than good. He sees everything. We do not. He's perfect. We are not. God's goodness encompasses perfect righteousness, benevolence, his love, his grace, his patience, his faithfulness, his compassion. He is good, absolutely, but not according to our arbitrary definition. Fourthly, God is good, but he doesn't answer to us. What's Job want the whole time in this book up until finally he closes his mouth? You might know. What does he want? Why? That's his question, right? He wants God to say, here's why. He wants God to answer for what has happened, right? 
he wants to, to get an audience with God and talk to him and sit him down and say, I, I don't understand this. What's going on? And we might look at a guy like Job and say, man, just open your eyes a little bit. I mean, can't you see beyond your own situation? You know, that God's got, he's got other things going on. I mean, he, you know, this is, he, he's got a bigger plan. And Job, God doesn't answer to you. But we sure want him to, don't we? I really wish sometimes that God would answer to me according to a few things, but I don't understand. Tell me why, God. God, it's not even fair. I mean, I, you know, I know you're not fair, but I mean, that's really not fair. I mean, I, you know, what do you say? This isn't right, God. I mean, you've you got some stuff that I need answers for, God. I, I, you know, and he doesn't answer, does he? Up until around chapters 37, 38, 39, God doesn't say a word to Job. And do you know what he says to Job when he finally begins to speak? Anything but why. Uh, uh, okay. God. Um. And finally, Job just sits there and takes it for three or four chapters, and he just says, okay, I, I'm, I'm done. I got nothing. We'll get there. God doesn't answer to us, and he won't. Because it doesn't answer to us. Do you want to serve a God that answers to you? <laughs> you want to serve a God that operates at the whim of every single person in the world? I don't. So all that may sound kind of harsh, like God is good, but. Okay, but I told you there are four. God is good and. Okay? Job gets to learn these things. God is good and pain can help us see that more clearly. God is good. And pain can help us see that more clearly. I remember talking with a guy years ago at my home church. His name was Dave, Dave Thompson. And Dave and his wife, Sue, were kind of the people that... Ken and Barbie, you know what I'm saying? They were like those people. They're just like, man, they're incredible. You know, like everything's perfect about them. And they were they were incredible believers and they led worship and they did all these things at my home church. They were just, they, they I mean, they were awesome. And Sue died of cancer at 40. I was a teenager. I'm like, man, I remember, I'm like, what? And I remember talking to Dave. They had moved away and he, he, she passed away during that time and he came back and was visiting our church one time and I, I called him in the hall. I said, Dave, I said, I said man, how are, how are you getting through this? You know, and, and he looked at me and he said, man, he said, let me just tell you, he said, he said, God's the only good thing going on. He said, I don't understand all this. He said, it hurts. He said, but I, I've just come to understand and realize God's the only good thing going on. You know what? In his pain, it helped him see God's goodness more clearly. Because everything else put God in sharp relief. This world is broken and it's sinful and it's full of disease. And it will be until Jesus returns to set it right. And in the meantime, our pain can help us see God more clearly. And it's in our pain that the goodness, the qualities of God, they show up. They begin to overwhelm us. Pain and suffering set God apart from this broken world. Secondly, God is good, and he's not done yet. I want to write down the reference. Write down James chapter 1. I encourage you to go read it. It's over in the New Testament, just past the book of Hebrews. 
James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces hopelessness and sorrow. Knowing that the testing of your faith, it says, instead produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Do you realize those things do not come from a life of ease? They come as a result of God leading us through pain and suffering. God is not done yet in the midst of what you're dealing with. What can God do? What is he doing? What has he done? What will he do in the future? Ultimately, final victory is not in doubt. Let God do what he needs to do in you to produce endurance so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. He's not done yet. This is not all there is, just pain and suffering. God is working. As the, as the, the story says, Aslan is on the move. He is working. He is there. Thirdly, God is good and he has not left us alone. What Job ultimately learned toward the end of this book is that God was there all along even though he was silent. It wasn't that God was absent. He was simply silent during that time. We won't always be able to trace the hand of God. You've heard something like this before. So, we have to learn to trust the heart of God. Can't always trace what he's doing. Lord, I don't understand. But I want to get to the point in my faith where we, even when I can't trace the hand of God, I've learned to trust the heart of God and know that he has not left me alone, that he is here. Never will I leave you, he says. Never will I forsake you. I will be with you. Joshua chapter 1, I will be with you. He tells Joshua, the new leader of the Israelites, just as I was with Moses, that would have spoken volumes to him, I will be with you. Not only is God with us, but he's given us a church full of people to sort of have Jesus with, with skin on, if you will. You ever felt like that? I just need somebody to kind of be with me right now. And I don't know if Elm Grove is your home. Maybe you're looking for a place or whatever. I don't know. But we've got to be the kind of church that is Jesus with skin on. People need it. And then finally, God is good and Jesus ends the discussion. Well, I, I just don't know. I, I, I can't see really any goodness of God. I just, I don't, I don't know. Let me encourage you. Make a practice of reading the Gospels. Make a practice of reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them. Consume them. Memorize them. When you cannot see the goodness of God, you have to go where he has ultimately displayed it, and that is in Jesus Christ. You see his life lived perfectly because we can't live up to God's standard. You see his death died sacrificially because somebody has to pay for sin, and our death is not good enough to pay for it. You see his resurrection bodily raised from the dead so that we might have the promise of eternal life. And you see his glorification giving us one day a preview of what we will be. And you see his sending of the Holy Spirit knowing that that is what Jesus said he, the Holy Spirit, 
will comfort you. Jesus ends the discussion. He entered our suffering, took it on, lived it perfectly, willingly went to the torturous death that we deserve. And it's because of Jesus that we can endure. Not your own strength. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way, and we'll close with this. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. This week, your prayer can be, Lord, I, I know you are good.